We're going to read through the entire book of Leviticus. Not really. There's just so many great jokes for your pastor to throw out. We are looking at the book of Leviticus today, and I'll just read some of the select scriptures from the bulletin that you can read along, and we will touch on them as we go through. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. In Leviticus chapter 11, 44 and 45, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus seventeen eleven, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you for on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life in Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Every one of you shall revere his father and his mother and you shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. There's a, just a, we don't do this all the time, making everybody stand or singing acapella or singing old songs, Psalter. This is just a way, as they said, to connect us. A couple of weeks ago, I preached the book of Exodus and saying that the, the way we want to preach is to draw us into the drama and the way you come to church to participate in the drama of redemption. And that applies to us in 2021. That applied to people in 1965, in 35, and the people of Leviticus back in 1400 BC. So... By singing a cappella, it's a way that we are tying ourselves to all those generations of faithful saints. What a gift. What, an, what a, a delight to see so many who have gone before us. That was a bonus. So let's pray and jump into the book of Leviticus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Teach us melodious sonnets to sing with the flaming tongues above this word of your holiness, God. You called us out of our bondage to sin and you call us into a relationship with you. And yet this big giant barrier of holiness stands in our way. You are holy and we are not. God, we tremble before you, wanting to come near, wanting our hearts to be satisfied in your presence. And yet, we can't come near unless you make us holy too. So show us how you make your people holy in this book for the glory of King Jesus. Amen. False gods are fickle masters. You never know if you've done enough to please them. Just when you think you're right on the verge of bliss, they take away your reward. 
They cause division by creating fear of impending doom without giving you clear instruction on how to avoid such disaster. And then when you give them your devotion, here I am, I'll do whatever you say, you don't get rewarded when they turn around and blame you for your ongoing problems. False gods are fickle masters. But Yahweh is not. And so he gives clear instruction. Though the book of Leviticus seems quite strange to us, it's actually very merciful instruction from God on how Israel can draw near to their holy God. Certain that if they are faithful, he will keep his promises. See, in this ancient world that that is quite familiar with God's telling them to offer sacrifices, people never knew if they did enough. What would the gods require next? All these gods are so fickle. They change their minds a lot. You are constantly asking, did I do enough? Did I give enough? Have I come too close? What are they going to require of me tomorrow? The only goat I have to feed my family? My entire farm? My children? This thing today, that thing tomorrow, will they ever be satisfied? And so Leviticus, as strange as it seems to our ears, was merciful provision from God to say, do this and you can draw near and I will promise I will not punish you for it. Leviticus laid out clearly what God expected from the people to draw near. But just because it's kind of really fits well in that ancient culture doesn't mean it's not relevant to us. We look at these ancient cultures, we dismiss them as foolish, ignorant, superstitious. We, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. But our modern gods are just as fickle. That word is starting to sound really weird in my ears. Fickle. We're a culture obsessed with fitness and diet. And yet, we have what experts tell us is an obesity epidemic. We exalt the expertise of our healthcare industry to save us from illness and disease, and yet nobody has yet survived death. We campaign for politicians. Let this guy rule over us. He, he will rule with benevolence. And we give him all of our money and all of our freedom and say, please take care of us. And then when it doesn't work, they blame us for not following their orders well enough. We invest in our sports teams with all of our emotion and they lead us right to the height of victory. And then if you're a Vikings fan, they crush your hopes every time. Or if you're a Tom Brady fan, you win every time and then it just becomes boring and routine and big deal. And we literally, literally sacrifice our children for the sake of convenience and prosperity and opportunity. Our gods are just as fickle. The gods of health, freedom, safety, prosperity, entertainment, education, reputation, all of them eventually devour their followers. If only we had some, some word that could give us some clear instruction on in how to find the peace that our hearts long. Oh, 
Here it is. We do. It's the Bible. And Leviticus, strangely enough, is God's promise to Israel that not only can they draw near to Him, but that someday future generations can draw near to the Holy God in Christ. It gives us confidence to have peace that all the false gods of our world offer to us but can't provide. So we're going to look at this book kind of in two parts, not in the traditional American way. The, the structure of the book has a very Hebrew uh, way of being put together. We're going to look first at this holy community that God has called out of Egypt. The structure of this book lays out what God's people must look like from the very edges of the camp through many layers to the center to interact with God's presence. And so secondly, we find there at the center of the camp and at the center of this book, a merciful God who gave beautiful instruction to draw people by his mercy into a relationship with himself. So let's take a look at that first aspect of drawing near to God. This holy community. If you remember a couple weeks ago at the, in the book of Exodus, right at the end, there's all these instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And they, they finally build the whole thing. And in the very last chapter, at the end of the book of Exodus, you see Moses walk up to the temple and it says, Moses could not enter. It's kind of like, well, that was a pretty sad ending, anticlimactic. It leaves you feeling like wondering, what is God going to do about this problem? And so Leviticus right away picks up on that tension in verse 1, saying the Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Moses is over there and God's going, hey, Moses. If God had hands and all of that. So there's still separation between God and his people. God powerfully rescued them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea. And right after, right after they begin to complain and right after they fashion a golden calf and start worshiping that instead, God could have just slaughtered them right there for their idolatry or cast them out into the wilderness. But he made a promise. He was going to make them into a holy nation that represented him and eventually provided a way back to the garden. So instead of being like those fickle gods that change their minds all the time, God, Yahweh, here is providing very clear instruction on what this community should look like so they can enjoy a relationship with him, not be in fear of him all the time. But there's a big roadblock in the way. It's this thing called holiness. When you read the book of Leviticus, if you got your Bible, just, just write holiness right under the title. That's what you should think about when you read the book of Leviticus. God is holy and we should be holy too. Holiness is the reason that Israel should have been killed in the wilderness. Holiness is the reason Moses couldn't go into the tent. And holiness is the reason why Israel exists to become holy and represent God's holiness. And Leviticus is guidance for how to be holy. So you see in, in your bulletin from chapters 11 and chapters 19, they kind of sandwich this central idea, bracket in this central idea to guard holiness. Both of them saying, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
If you're going to come into the center, into a relationship with God, you need to be holy. But we're not. And God is. What is holiness? How do I get it? How do I have it? Is it something I hold and put in my pocket or eat and make it a part of me? Most commonly, people define holiness as being separate. Set apart is the phrase you often hear. God is separate from the world, and so we should be separate from the world. But that doesn't quite fully grasp what holiness is all about. Because before the world existed, God was holy. There was nothing for him to be separate from. And when we're in heaven, everything's going to be holy. We're going to be holy. God's fullness of his holiness is going to fill the whole creation. There's nothing for us to separate from. So it doesn't quite fit. Holiness is not so much separating yourself from something, but devoting yourself to God. Consecrating yourself to God. Being dedicated to God. Nobody's more devoted to God than himself. So he is holy. And so we should be holy as well. You can live in an unholy world and still be holy because you are pointed the opposite direction as the rest of the world. Giving, doing everything to the glory of God. Yet we still don't just get to decide what holiness is. It's not up to us to define, you know, I'm going to go sleep with my girlfriend, but it's to the glory of God. So it's holy doesn't make any sense. We need instruction. Leviticus is giving us specific instruction on what God requires for holiness. When you study all these laws about coming near to God, when you read the tabernacle and all the clothing that the priests wear, you start to notice that there's layers in everything. So the tabernacle has an outer court where you can come in and that's where you offer your sacrifice and you worship God. And then there's a holy place where the priests can go in and fellowship with God on your behalf. And then inside, there's the most holy place. That's God's throne room. Nobody goes in there. Except one guy, once a year, with a lot of precaution. Because God's holiness is uncovered. If a sinner walks into that presence, he will be incinerated like a dry leaf on the surface of a sun. Gone. So the priests also had layers of protection on them as well. Not only was the tabernacle various layers, but the priests' clothes were like a tabernacle inside out, this time with the unholy on the inside. Kind of this double layer of protection as they walk in. There's all these layers because you don't want God's holiness to kill you. And similarly, we have the book of Leviticus has these same types of layers. There's, it's kind of this outside-in structure. The first and the last sections match up, and then the next sections in kind of talk about the same kind of thing, and then the next sections building in this Hebrew style to a center idea. And so the book of Leviticus takes this form, drawing these outer layers, says in your kind of shows the structure in your bulletin. Chapters 1 through 7 and 22 to 25 talking about all the rituals that Israel must participate in. Sacrifices to cover sins and sacrifices to say thank you to God. And then at the end, all of the feasts, the festivals, for the whole community to replay this drama of the Exodus. So they remember it year after year. 
And then the next sections in, 8 to 10 and 21 to 22, talk about the priesthood. These are the guys that are supposed to guard the temple, to keep it holy, and to keep people who are not holy out of the temple, like Adam was supposed to do in the garden. It wasn't so much to protect God from unholiness, but to protect the unholy people from God, as we'll see in a little while. And then the next section in, right before the middle, 11 to 15 and 18 to 20, emphasize community purity, moral purity, and ritual purity. Things that mark the life of a worshiper in order to enter the temple. Stressing that all of these rituals aren't just empty. They must go right to the center of who you are, your identity, your character, if you want to come near God. This all seems really strange to our modern ears. You read and you go, pigs are unclean, but bacon is so good. Ah, what do I do? So when you read through these, don't, don't think that all of it is sin. Some of them are, many of them are sin. But the idea is that these are things that are associated with the curse, the fall in Genesis 3. The curse brought death into the world and the ground was cursed and Satan, the serpent, was cursed to crawl on the ground. So things that are associated with the ground, with Satan, bugs that crawl and lizards on the ground and animals that spent a lot of time on the ground are unclean. And things associated with death, blood coming out of your body or animals that kill other animals in order to eat, death is a reminder of the curse. All of this to say that if you want to enter into the temple and meet with God, your life needs to reflect the pre-cursed world. The temple was a picture of heaven coming down and earth meeting. And there the garden being restored. And you can't bring the curse into the garden. You can't bring the curse in by God. And to show you that he's serious about this holiness, this picture of the new creation in the temple, chapter 10 tells you about two guys who didn't take it very seriously. Nadab and Abihu. Two priests, sons of Aaron, walked into the temple and said, yeah, we get what it says, but we're going to just do this extra thing just because we think it'll be helpful for our case. Dead. On the spot. The other priests had to go in and drag them out of there. Killed because they did not trust God's provision. God is not messing around here. This Leviticus is some serious stuff. Serious about his holiness. This is being a worshiper of the one true God is dangerous. Can you imagine being a priest and they call upon you? It's your turn to come serve in the temple. Hey, Levi, you're up. Quaking in my sandals here and put the priestly garments on and pull the curtain back. Oh, I'm I'm still alive. Thank you, God. Okay, I'm going to go offer the sacrifice now. I hope I do it right. Hoping he doesn't mess up and die. Man, is this really mercy? Is this, is God really this demanding? And now we've reached the center of the book. 
All of this is not to reveal to us a fickle, capricious, vindictive, big fancy words for God makes it up as he goes and he just punishes people whenever he feels like it. He's not that kind of God. Instead, it's meant to draw us into a relationship with this merciful God. God knew that they wouldn't be able to keep all of the rules. So right at the heart of the book, he reveals his own merciful heart. Chapters 16 and 17 describe the day of atonement. One day a year, a special set of sacrifices made to kind of reset the community, start the entire nation over so they could be holy representatives altogether of God. Because even with all these very clear prescribed rituals, they still can't do it. There's always the fear that someone in the congregation accidentally touched something unclean and they didn't know about it. And then they touched that person who was unclean or someone sinned against somebody and they didn't even realize it. There's unconfessed sin, unrepented sin all over the community. It just keeps spreading. Is God going to cut us down because of all of this unknown sin? These hidden impurities? How's Israel going to cleanse themselves? So the day of atonement described in chapter 16 explains this complex process to reset the nation. One day a year, the high priest, the high priest alone goes into the temple and everyone else takes a step back just in case. And he goes in and he offers a bull, sacrifices a bull, and he takes a coal off the fire that's burning the bull. He doesn't really use his hands. That'd be a bad idea. But he carries it into the the tent and he lets the smoke from that fill the tent, providing more of a covering. So, So when he walks in, he doesn't get a full look onto God's glory. And then he takes some of the blood from that bull and he pulls the inner curtain back and sprinkles it on the throne, the Ark of the Covenant. And he didn't die, so then he can go back out. And then there's a goat, and he sacrifices that goat, and he takes that blood back in. The, the first blood to cover, to clean everything that he's ever touched. And then the goat's blood to clean anything that anyone else has ever touched. And then he can come back out. And there's another goat. And he puts his hands on that goat. And he confesses all the sins of the people, all the unknown things, all the ways that they've not honored God and made him look good in the world. And he casts that goat out into the wilderness, symbolizing taking their sins far, far away from them. And then he goes back into the temple. Nobody's there, takes all of his clothes off, climbs into this giant basin of water, gets under there, washes off, and he comes out symbolizing a brand new, clean, newborn man of creation. He's the first man of a new nation, a new creation, ready to lead them into the promised, into the presence of God. And so he has one more sacrifice. He can't bring all those people along if they're still unclean. A ram to sacrifice to cover the sins of all the people who will follow. So much here. This multi-layered process, a way of clearing out all the remnants of sin and all the banishing, all the impurities far away so they can meet with God again. Man, it seems so excessive to us. We've gotten so comfortable with just coming and going wherever we please. All that blood, all the layers, all covered in blood everywhere. Why? 
Chapter 17, verse 11 explains it. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is necessary to pay for their sins. Remember Genesis 2, God said, if you do not obey me, you will die. Fortunately, God was merciful to provide a substitute. Something else died in his place. Animals in place of their lives. Lots and lots of animals for lots and lots of sins. This is the interesting, confusing drama that the book of Leviticus is all about. God is being extremely merciful to provide all of these coverings so they can draw near to their holy God. God's clear instruction so they could be certain if they followed them, God would not pull the rug out from underneath them. And then if you turn to the next book, the book of Numbers, you see right away in chapter 1, verse 1, a contrast to the beginning of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. They did it. They're in the tent now. They, they kept all the commands. They did what God said and God kept his word. And now they're communing with their God that rescued them. What peace and joy that would not last very long at all. As Jake will show us next week in the book of Numbers. But it wouldn't be God's fault. God's not fickle. He gave them clear instruction. He didn't change the rules. He didn't say, oh yeah, you did it all right, but I changed my mind. I'm keeping it for myself. So many merciful provisions he gave, but even with all of them, they couldn't do it. We often think, man, what a privilege they had in the Old Testament. God's speaking right to them. Wouldn't life be so much easier if God just gave you clear instruction? He did, and they didn't. We still can't do it because all of the rituals can't deal with the root of the problem, can't get right down into your heart, into your sinful heart, into your unholy soul, and make it clean. So with polluted hearts, all we do with all these rituals is make them empty. Without new hearts, we just use religion to make ourselves look good, to satisfy ourselves. We don't need clearer instruction for life. We need hearts in order, new hearts to follow what's already been made clear. We need God to come out of the tent and do it for us and lead us back in. Now we know where we're going. Jesus. That's what Christ came to do. He fulfilled every role of the book. When he showed up, he did all of the the community festivals with them. He went to the temple. Remember when he cleansed the temple? He became the priest. He cleaned out all the unholiness, the corruption that was happening. As priests are supposed to do. He made it possible by his own blood for all to draw near to the holy God. The book of Hebrews tells us he's a great high priest who made the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He's the scapegoat upon whom all God's people's sins were laid and taken outside of the city. His body, he said, is the pure and holy temple that actually brings the presence of God to the people. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one says that that curtain, the inner barrier 
the layer protecting us from God's holiness torn in two when he cried out, it is finished. His sacrifice so perfectly satisfied the wrath on all sins, so completely removed our sins for us, so thoroughly cleansed the temple that anyone who believes in Jesus can waltz right up to the throne of God like you're his own son and he loves you. He says, come on in. All of it without the layers of a tent and smoke and blood and special clothes and sacrifices and rituals. Jesus is all the covering we need. So Hebrews chapter 4, way on this side. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's not just saying pray. It's saying, get yourself into the temple. You can walk right up to God because of Jesus. And he continues, whoever wrote this in chapter 10, starting in verse 19, says the same thing. Therefore, brothers and sisters implied, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his own flesh, because his body's the temple. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Cling to Jesus, he says, trusting that in him you are made clean, not by any animal's blood. Cling to Jesus, hold fast to hope in him by drawing near to his church without fear don't neglect to gather with the saints because gathering with the saints is the temple that christ's sacrifice gave us full joyful access to why wouldn't you just want to run here every single sunday i gotta get there to go see god jesus gives me freedom to delight to give everything away because i would rather be in there with god Or to boldly attend gathering because Christ has cleansed us and promised us uninhibited access to the Father in this temple. So many Christians have this misunderstanding that Jesus just, when he came, he simply did away with all the Old Testament stuff. This book of Leviticus, you can kind of just skim through it. It's not that important. We don't do that anymore. But that's not true. Jesus simply filled it out and expanded it so it can be everywhere a church meets, not just in Jerusalem. The Sunday gathering is where God's presence is most fully experienced. It's where his face is most clearly seen on each other. It's where his voice is most plainly heard. It's where his family is cared for as equals. It's where his children are most directly matured. The church not the building. This is a hotel. The church, you people, are the New Testament house of God that Jesus allows full access to. 
without fear that God might change his mind. Fearing we haven't done enough. Or maybe I don't fit in with those people. Fearing that it might kill me if I go. All of this weird Leviticus stuff fulfilled in Christ so we can run to the gathering of believers and spend time together delighting in our holy God. Just a, a warning, however, just because the location and practices are have been modified doesn't mean it's any less serious. The Jews took it serious. They protected that temple. When the Greeks and the Romans showed up, they fought to their death to prevent those Romans from coming into the temple and desecrating God's holiness. Nobody but God decides how to worship Him in the temple. Caesar has no authority to tell the temple worshipers what to wear, how to decorate, how the people inside interact with one another. They remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu. They remember when God exiled them for kind of bringing other practices into the temple. No, we won't let that happen. And then Jesus changed the place of his presence from the temple to this gathered church. The priesthood of the believers in Acts were equally zealous to defend his holy place. Remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira brought an impure sacrifice. They lied about how much they had given as a financial offering. And so just like Nadab and Abihu, in gathering in the gathering of God's people, they were killed for their perverted offering. This is why Paul warned, do not take communion in an unworthy manner. Don't lie saying, I'm unified with God if I'm not unified with Christ's body. God's not messing around, church. This is serious stuff. What we do on Sunday mornings is even more serious than the temple worship prescribed in Leviticus because it's the Son of God's own blood that we defend. God's the same holy God, and now His temple goes wherever His people gather, preaching His Word, practicing all of these New Testament rituals. But people can only enter in if they've been made holy. Only this time, the holiness code is simplified into one man, Jesus. Trust Jesus, and you can come in. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus God promises anyone who trusts in Christ can come in. Come on in. We need to be especially careful not to say, Jesus and your Sunday best. Jesus and cleaning up your life first. No, just Jesus and come on in. You don't need to clean your life up first. Jesus cleaned you by his blood. You don't have to dress a certain way or wear certain coverings. Jesus is your covering. Jesus, you don't need to wonder, have you done enough? Jesus did it all perfectly for you. You don't need to hang your head in shame. Jesus lifts your chin so you can joyfully enter with him. You don't need to know all the right things and speak all the right words. Jesus stands before the father making your words acceptable. You don't have to find some worldly common ground. Hey, we're the cowboy church. You know, we're, we're the, uh, we're the young married's church. We're the homeschooling church. We're the old folks church. No! Jesus is our common ground. 
You don't have to give all your money to enter. Jesus paid your ransom. Now your gifts are just a generous overflow of a heart washed clean by Jesus. Friends, this world, your neighbors, your coworkers, everything you hear on the news and social media, constantly searching and proclaiming certainty that they will be accepted, that they will be safe, that they don't need to fear drawing near to God, that they have done enough to make it. They want to be on the right side of history. They want to know that all their efforts will finally find some satisfaction. The prophets on the news always proclaiming impending doom. Our political leaders always mandating new ways to save you from doom. New priesthoods in every organization telling you how to become clean so you can enter society safely. And all of them will end up in the same place. Disappointment. Because false gods are fickle masters. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you can draw near with confidence. No matter what happens in this life, you are welcomed by His blood right here. Not just here, but by His side in His heavenly courts when He returns and calls us all home. Let's be that holy temple showing the world where to find peace with God in Christ. Let's be the worshipers that display delight in Christ every time we gather that only comes from drawing near to Him in one another. Let's go and give our bodies, as Paul says in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that we could open the door for others to walk in covered by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. God, what a gift. What a gift these words are to us. To calm our anxious hearts. To strengthen our weary bodies. To inspire confused souls. You paint a beautiful picture of a scared priesthood trying to draw near and Jesus bursts through on the t- on the scene and says, follow me in. God, I pray everyone who walks in here today would simply say, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. And that together we would lift our eyes to him and worship him and find our rest forever in Christ. Amen.